Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. As you're uh, turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we do want to wish uh, Regina a very happy birthday. Today's her birthday, so if you're going to get a chance to wish her a happy birthday online or with a card, I'm sure she'd appreciate that. So happy birthday, Regina. Uh, so we're in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 21. We're going to start with the first verse, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. A couple of weeks ago, um, Ellie was uh, talking with me. Uh, it's generally a pretty one-sided conversation, talking with Ellie. Um, she, uh, she told me, when I grow up, I want to kill every animal and eat it. And the first animal I want to kill is a jellyfish, because it's going to taste like jello. And I was a little concerned. You know, it's kind of dark, you know, wanting to kill every animal and eat it. So I... I was trying, trying to think of where this was coming from, and I, I, I realized, you know, over the past uh, few months or so, we, uh, we have had opportunity to butcher uh, some animals in our garage, a, a sheep and a pig, um, and I had brought the kids out each time just to kind of, you know, see what's going on. This is where the meat's coming from, and uh, I really think that Ellie was just wanting to imitate her father by killing every animal and wanting to eat it. That's the command here. Children imitate their parents, right? It's, uh, it's natural for children to imitate their parents. It's probably the most natural thing for, do, for them to do. And as children of God, we are to imitate our Heavenly Father. And that's the command that Paul is giving us to do here. Be imitators of God. Now, as children, we can't imitate our Heavenly Father very, very well a lot of the times, or Christian walk is often defined by us failing, um, not being able to do things the way we want to, the way he tells us to. We just are, we're sinners and we struggle. I remember uh, last week when we were shoveling our driveway, Lydia was out there with us helping us. She picked the biggest shovel she could find, it's twice her size, and she was holding it like this and just kind of dragging it around the driveway trying to shovel. I mean, we as children, we can't perfectly imitate our Father, but we strive to the best way that we can. So Paul tells us how we're to imitate God. He gives us three ways that we're to imitate God, three commands. We imitate God by walking in love. You see that command in verse 2? We imitate God by walking as children of light. You see that in verse 8? We imitate God by walking not as unwise, but as wise. You see that command in verse 15. So those are our three points this morning. And before we get into them, I I just want to emphasize a couple of things about this passage. First of all, Paul is talking about our walk. And Pastor Nate talked about this last week a little bit. What is our walk? Our walk is our day-to-day life, our day-to-day living. All of our decisions, all of our behaviors, all of our thoughts, they all kind of combine to form our walk. So when the Bible is talking about our walk, he's talking, it's talking about our day-to-day lives. We're to have a new walk. The walk we have as Christians is supposed to be different than the walk we had as unbelievers. And so Paul, throughout this whole epistle, he's been contrasting the Christian's walk with the life of the unbeliever. 
Our lives should be different now that we are Christians, and you're going to see that throughout this passage. So let's get into this. First command, chapter, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is the greatest commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. That's the first and greatest commandment. Jesus says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus is the only man who's ever obeyed these commands perfectly. He's the only one who was able to love his father and his fellow man perfectly. And so we look to him for our example of what it means to walk in love. He's the picture that Paul presents to us about walking in love. How does Jesus love us? He gives us a few characteristics here in this verse. He says, as Christ loved us, and Jesus loves each one of his children, right? Jesus' love is a personal love. Jesus has a personal relationship with each of his children. Uh, last year when we were uh, in, in quarantine on, on vacation, uh, the kids and I and Steph, we were playing a game, and uh, the basic premise of this game is you got a card, and the card told you whether or not you were a spy, okay? And the whole point of the game, each round, you were trying to figure out who the other spies were, and if you were a spy, you were trying to make everyone else think that you're not a spy. So that's the whole premise of the game. So at the beginning of the round, you get a card that tells you if you're a spy or not. So the first round, everyone got their card, and I just looked at my family. I just watched them, and I said, you're the spy, and you're the spy. And I was absolutely right. Second round, new cards. I looked at everybody. You're a spy, you're a spy. I was right. Third round, same thing. New cards, you're the spy, and you're the spy. Just based on watching their behavior, watching their faces. Now, I'm guessing that, well, they didn't want to play with me after that. There was no fourth round. Um, I'm guessing that if any of you were playing that game with us, you wouldn't have been able to do that. Because you don't know my kids the way I know my kids. You don't know my wife the way I know my wife. I have a personal, intimate relationship with each one of them. And so does Jesus. He knows all of his kids personally. And I just love the idea that God is constantly adopting children. Every day he's drawing more people into his kingdom. Every day he's snatching people up and saying, you're mine. You're in the family now. God's really good at adopting kids. Steph and I, we're like three. We're, we're done after three. I don't have the patience for more. I don't have the resources for more. But God can supply the needs of a huge family. He's constantly adopt, adopting kids, and he knows them all personally. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses. He knows your likes, your dislikes, your, your, your talents, your goals, your secrets. He knows the moment that you became his child. And he wants you to know him as well as he knows you. Jesus' love is a personal love. And our love should be personal as well. Well, in the body, it should be personal. So listen, if you, if you want to love the rest of the body personally, the way that Jesus loves you, you've got to get involved in a small group. We can't love one another deeply unless we know each other personally. Uh, just this last week, I learned something about a friend of mine in a small group about how I can love him better. 
That kind of work only happens at small group. If you really want to love the way Jesus loved, you want to have a personal love for your brothers and sisters. That kind of work really happens at small groups. So I really encourage you to get involved. Jesus loves us and gave himself up for us, Paul says. Jesus' love is sacrificial, right? Jesus sacrificed his life for us. His, his love was demonstrated at the cross. And Paul says that Jesus' giving himself up for us was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It was fragrant. It was pleasing to God. And it was an offering. You know, an offering is something that's freely given. And Jesus wasn't forced by the Father to give up his life. He laid it down willingly for us. Jesus freely bore our sin upon himself. He willingly took the punishment for our sin. He willingly suffered the wrath of God in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. He said, freely I lay down my life and freely I take it up again. So walking in love as Jesus loves means that we willingly, freely love one another. We make sacrifices, not expecting to be loved back, not demanding something in return. We love freely, willingly. Paul says there's a, a fragrant sacrifice. Jesus loved us so much that he paid for our forgiveness with the highest price that he could pay. He paid with his perfect life. Jesus' sacrificial life was costly to him. And he demonstrated the depth of his love by the high cost of his sacrifice. And you know what? Our love should be the same. You know, uh, 22 years ago, I would have told you that I was a really selfless person. Okay? I was living alone. All right? Uh, And when you're single... It's really easy to pat yourself on the back when you make any kind of sacrifice at all for somebody because it happens so rarely, you think it's a big idea, a big deal. Uh, But then I got married, right? And living with somebody else who has their own needs, their own wants, their own desires, now the opportunities for me to sacrifice, they just increase sevenfold. And after about a dozen arguments caused by uh, nothing more than my selfish behavior, I started to realize, hey, maybe I'm not nearly as selfless as I thought I was. And then you start having kids, and all these kids are making tons of demands on you. And every time they make a demand, you have an opportunity. Am I going to sacrifice my wants and my needs or not? And there's been times where I was so sick of kids, I didn't want to give them a cup of water. I'm not getting you water. And you realize just how selfish you are when you don't want to get your kid a cup of water. Really selfish. You know, the family unit, I've found that the family unit is, God has used it in my life to burn away, it's like a furnace, burning away my love of self. And the church body is a furnace which God uses to burn away our love of ourselves. And listen, some of you don't get more involved in church and you don't go to small group because you don't want to have to enter, in, enter into one more relationship where you know it's going to cost you something. We're going to have to make sacrifices for somebody else. You want to be loved, but you don't want love to cost you anything. And that's not Christ's love. Walking in love means that we make sacrifices for others freely despite the cost. 
Now, most of us will never be placed in a dramatic situation where we demonstrate our love for others by dying for them. But as Christians, we have opportunities every day to demonstrate our love by dying to ourselves. By dying to ourselves. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. We have opportunities in this body every week to sacrifice for others. That's what Jesus did for us. His love was a personal love. It was a sacrificial love that was both freely given and costly to give. And that's how the world loves. That's how Jesus loves. But that's not how the world loves. The world's expression of love is dominated by sexual sin. And that's what Paul begins to make a contrast here in verses 3 through 6. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So Paul says that the world expresses love predominantly through Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Now, sexual immorality, uh, the Greek word is pornea, has to do with every kind of sexual sin you can think of, adultery, fornication, uh, you know, incest, pornography, you name it, this word's covering it, okay? Impurity, this is just describing all the ugliness that comes with sexual sin. Now, Paul's saying here that The world's love is all about self, gratifying yourself, doing what you want to do, getting what you want out of a relationship. God's love is all about sacrifice. The world's love is just an impurity. It's a cesspool of sin. But God's love is holy. He says it's covetousness. Now, covetousness may sound out of place, but if you think about it, it's at the root of all sexual sin. To covet is to have a strong craving for something that isn't yours and something that you have no right to. And that desire is so strong that it causes you to rebel against God's will in order to satisfy your own desires. That's what covetousness is. You know, who does God say that we have a right to have sexual intercourse with? Our spouse. That's it. No one else. There's no other circumstances that it's allowed ever. Just your spouse. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So whether you're married or not, whether you're a Christian or not, God wants the marriage bed to be honored by everybody. It's a sacred covenant that he's given to mankind. Sex is given to a man and a woman who have entered into the covenant relationship of marriage to make them one flesh. And we're to honor marriage so highly that we're not even to think about having sex with someone that's not our spouse. That's what Jesus says. If you look at a woman that lusts after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, that's how the world loves. And for those of you that think that you're behaving okay as long as you're not physically uh, committing sexual sin or maybe you're not thinking about it, uh, Paul says you're wrong. Uh, Paul says we're not even supposed to be talking about these things. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. We're not to talk about that stuff ever. That's language from our old life. Not to be a part of this anymore. 
We're not supposed to think about it. We're not supposed to talk about it. It's not a part of who we are anymore. We have a new walk. So what should our speech be like instead? Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Now why? Why thanksgiving? Listen, you, you can't be selfish and thankful at the same time. You can't be coveting what you don't have when you are thankful for what you do have. Those two things can't exist in the heart at the same time. Covetousness is at the root of the world's love. Gratitude is at the root of a Christian's love. If you're thankful for all that God has given to you, then you won't crave what you don't have and let that discontentment lead you to sinning to get what you feel you have been denied. Okay, now Paul's about to get real real serious here in verse 5. He's telling his readers in verse 5 that if they are Christians, then their love should not look like the world's love at all. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now again, remember, Paul is contrasting the believer's life with the unbeliever's life. And he draws a real clear line in the sand here, making a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. He's saying Christians won't live in these sins. They will not habitually live in the sins of idolatry, covetousness, sexual immorality, impurity. Now, as Christians, do we, do we fall sometimes? Yeah. And God is gracious to forgive every sin that we confess and repent of. But Paul is saying here that Christians won't habitually live in these sins. They'll repent. They fall into them. They'll turn from their sin. They'll respond to God's discipline. Christians won't remain in these sins. Unbelievers, they live there their whole lives and they don't care. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Remember the Ephesians, they lived in a city where sexual sin was rampant. Having sex with a temple prostitute was one of the ways that they worshipped in, in, in that culture. And Paul's saying that anyone who tells you that you can be a Christian and continue to go to the temple to have sex with prostitutes is a liar. Anyone who tells you that God is okay with you living a life of sexual immorality is a liar. They're wrong. God's not okay with it. So if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you're living in sexual immorality and you're okay with that, that's really scary. And you better be testing yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because Paul says here that no one who lives like that will go to heaven. This is your life on the line here. If you're claiming to be a Christian and you live in sexual immorality and you're okay with that, you may be in very real danger you may be one of those people in Matthew 7 who believe they're saved and they're not. And they're going to find out on the day of judgment that they weren't Christians. They're going to hell. Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So you need to be testing yourself. You need to repent. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That means you prove that you are sorry for your sin by changing your life. 
To walk in love means to walk as Christ loved us. We aren't to have any union with unbelievers whose love is nothing like the love of God, which is why Paul tells us, therefore, do not become partners with them. We're not supposed to share in their sinful behavior. We aren't supposed to join with them in expressing love the way they express love. Paul's saying, don't partner with them. Don't be like them because that's not who you are anymore. That's not how you live your life anymore. It's not how you walk anymore. For at one time you were darkness in the past, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So he's going from the admonition to walk in love now to the admonition to walk in the light. Second point. Now what does light represent here? And really throughout the rest of Scripture. There are two sides to this idea of light, and Paul talks about them both here in verse 8. So on one side of light is the side of knowledge or, or beliefs. Uh, on this side, light in, in the Bible is synonymous with truth. So walking in the light can mean knowing and believing the truth. On the other side of this coin of, of light is the side of morality. On this side, light represents behaviors, and it's synonymous with holiness. So walking in light can also mean, depending on the context of the scripture, can also mean uh, living a holy life, holy behavior. So when the Holy Spirit talks about light throughout the Bible, he's talking about either believing truth or behaving holy. And the opposite is also true. When the Holy Spirit is talking about darkness, again, based on the context of the verse, it can mean uh, being in ignorance about the truth or behaving sinfully. So when Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, he's talking about the knowledge side of light here. He means at one time you didn't believe the truth about Jesus Christ. Intellectually, you were blind. You were living in darkness. But now that you know Jesus, you have knowledge of him, you know the truth, now you are light in the Lord. And since you know the truth, now you have to behave according to the truth. You are to now walk as children of light. He's talking about the behavior on that part. And that's a command. We're to walk as children of light. Now, what does that look like in in our day-to-day lives? Paul tells us in verse 9 that there are three fruits that will appear in our lives when we walk as children of light. Three fruits. And the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Now, all Christians produce fruit, okay? Uh, There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. If you're a Christian, you're going to produce fruit because the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and starts to change you and starts to make you like your Father. And the great summary of what the fruits of the Spirit are in Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul kind of condenses those nine fruits into these three here in verse 9. Okay, So the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that's, that is everything that is good and right, and true. Okay? So here's the effect of walking in, in these fruits of light. When we do everything good, and right, and true, when these fruits are being produced in our lives, we will prove to everyone else what is pleasing to the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the ESV translation. I think the King James translation is a better translation here. It's uh, literal. The King James Version says, proving what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul's saying that if you're walking in the light, then your life will prove to the rest of the world 
based on the fruits that you're producing, they will prove to the rest of the world what is pleasing to the Lord. So he's talking about our witness here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> like a lot of other people, I uh, got into making uh, sourdough bread during all this quarantine. I got a starter from uh, uh, Leslie Wood, and she's had it for like 11 or 12 years. Pretty amazing. She gave me some of the starter. So the starter has the yeast in it, and you've got to feed it to keep it alive, and the yeast will keep feeding and growing. So when you're about to make your bread, you mix your dough together, and then you mix some of the starter into your dough, and you knead it all together. Okay? And then you put that dough someplace warm for a while. And that's called proving the dough. And what it's doing is it's proving whether or not the yeast in your dough is good. Okay? There'll be evidence if it's good. The dough will start to rise. That proves that the yeast is active, it's grow, growing, it's doing what it's supposed to do. If you... If it doesn't grow, if the dough doesn't grow, that proves that your yeast is bad. You've got to do something different. Okay, so Paul's saying here, in the same way that expanding dough proves the yeast in the dough is good, so too will these fruits of the Spirit prove to the world what is pleasing to the Lord. And that's, that's how Jesus lived, right? He proved what was pleasing to God. If you want to know what pleases the Father, you just have to look at Jesus' life because everything he did pleased the Father. As God's children, our lives should have fruit in it that proves to the Lord, to the world, what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, in addition to all that is good, right, and true, here's a fourth fruit that will be part of your walking in the light. Verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. We aren't to have any fellowship with the works of the darkness, but that doesn't mean that we're supposed to not have contact with the world. We're not called to live like the Amish. Uh, they, they got it wrong. Um, we aren't to have any kind of fruit, uh, contact with, we aren't to have any kind of fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but we are called to expose it. Expose it. Now, exposing the works of darkness means that we're going to have to tell people that they're sinners. Okay? That's what it's talking about. And that's not, that doesn't sound pleasant. People are going to hate us, right? But this is a really necessary work for the Christian. Why do we have to do this work of exposing evil? Paul tells us, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. You've got to follow me on this. If we don't shine the light of God's truth into an unbeliever's life, then their sin will never be exposed. Okay? If their sin is never exposed, then their sin will never become visible to them. And if their sin never becomes visible to them, they will never see themselves as sinners who need a Savior. And if they never see their sin and their need for a Savior, they will never repent of their sin. And if they never repent of their sin, they will never look to Jesus to save them, and they will die in their sin. So you can see how important it is for Christians to walk in the light and expose the works of darkness. You know, only a sick person believes that he needs a doctor, right? Only a sinner believes that he needs a Savior. And that's why we have to do the work of exposing sin. 
once they see that their sin is exposed, that it's real, that they are sinners who are going to go to hell, then we point them to Jesus. He's the light of the world. He's the only one that can save them from their sins. And that's what Paul's doing in verse 14. He says, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When we expose the darkness and sin in a person's life, we're calling that person to wake up. We're calling that person to rise from the dead. We're telling them, you don't have to live in the darkness you're living in anymore. The light of the world is here. You don't have to live as dead men because of your sin anymore. There is a Savior. His name's Jesus Christ. So walking in the light means we're doing all that is good and right and true, and we're exposing darkness so that men would look to Jesus so that he can shine on them. So Paul tells us to look carefully then how we walk. Look carefully. I got kids that still, uh, they run into the walls at our house. You know, our, 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 those walls have been, been there since we moved in. They still run into them. They're not look, looking where they're going. Paul tells us we've got to look carefully so we don't run into walls. Watch how you walk because you're witnesses of Jesus Christ. Your life is supposed to be displaying Jesus Christ. So it better be an accurate reflection of who he is. Don't walk like you used to walk when you were in darkness. Back then, your ignorance of truth made you a fool. But now that you're in the light and you know the truth, you are now to walk in wisdom. So again, Paul's comparing the life of a Christian to the life of an unbeliever. Unbelievers are unwise. They're fools. Christians are wise. We've been given Jesus Christ who is the wisdom of God. So how do we walk not as unwise but as wise? <coughs> First, by making the best use of time because the days are evil. How you spend your time is a strong indicator of how well you're walking in wisdom. I remember reading about a guy, I don't know who it was, I don't remember. It was, one of, it was either a Puritan guy or it might have been one of the, the guys from the Great Awakening. It might have been George Whitfield or maybe John Wesley, I don't remember. All I remember is this guy, how he spent this guy, this guy how he spent his time. He would spend eight hours a day uh, sleeping and eating, taking care of his body. He'd spend another eight hours a day reading the Bible and praying. He'd spend another eight hours a day preaching and teaching the Bible. Now, uh, I don't tell us that about that guy's schedule to make us all feel bad. I, I'll never attain that kind of uh, schedule. But just based on how this guy spent his time, you can tell who he loves, right? Spent eight hours a day praying to God and reading God's word. He loved God, right? He spent eight hours a day preaching and teaching to his neighbors. He loved his neighbor. He spent eight hours a day taking care of himself. He loved himself. Does how you spend your time demonstrate your love for Jesus? How wise you're walking is clearly seen by how you spend your time. Fools waste their time. They squander their time pursuing things that have no eternal value. And Paul tells us not to be like them. He says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So making the best use of time because the days are evil does not mean, mean spending your time just doing, doing, doing whatever comes to mind. Paul says, don't be foolish about how you're spending your time. Don't be dumb. Don't be stressed out frantically trying to do everything you can do all the time. Don't be a busybody like Martha. Don't be foolish with your spot time. Spend it doing the Lord's will. 
Spend it doing what God tells you to do. People, God tells us to rest once a week, right? He commands us to celebrate. He gave Israel feast weeks where they were to do no work and they were supposed to do nothing but celebrate him. I used to, uh, you know, I used to work full time. I used to pastor a church. I was busy, busy, busy all the time doing a lot of work. And I did a lot of work with very limited results. I was a fruitless pastor because I neglected prayer. I was busy all the time, but I neglected prayer. I wasn't doing what God was telling me to do. Paul was telling us to be wise about how we spend our time. Do what the will of the Lord is. Second, how do we walk not as unwise but as wise? Do not be drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. This is the second thing we're supposed to do, to walk as wise. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, it may sound pretty obvious that if uh, uh, you want to walk in wisdom, you shouldn't spend your time getting drunk. Um, But that wasn't obvious to the Ephesians, Um, especially the Ephesians who were giving up their old way of life, their old ways of worship. Drunkenness was a common, acceptable part of pagan worship. Just like visiting temple prostitutes was acceptable, common practice. It was believed that uh, drunkenness would help you commune with the gods. So getting drunk was very common in the, the, the temples. Uh, it, it was so common in the ancient world that uh, you remember when the disciples... Uh, and the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They started speaking in tongues. They were immediately accused of getting drunk, being drunk. Uh, the people, they thought they were just get, getting ready to worship. It was so common. You remember uh, Pastor Nate preaching from Revelation twenty-two fifteen, which says that no sorcerers will be allowed in heaven. Sorcerers were like pagan worship leaders. Uh, they taught people how to worship the gods by using alcohol and drugs, getting drunk, getting, getting high. And this practice has been around for a long time, right? There's still people today that get drunk and get high because they want to commune with God and get close to God. And Paul's saying here, don't do that. Uh, We don't commune with God that way. We don't use alcohol to hear from God or feel close to God or understand God. We have the Holy Holy Spirit that does those things. (coughs) We're to be filled with the Spirit instead. Now, what does that mean, be filled with the Spirit? A lot of... A lot of teaching out there on this. I just want to give you six facts about this word filled to help you understand what it means. This is from the Greek. It'll help us understand it, I think. Uh, First of all, this word filled is in the imperative mood, which means that this is a command. Okay, All Christians everywhere for all time are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Every Christian is to be filled. This is not just something for the charismatics. This is not just something for super holy people. Everyone's to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is also in the present tense, which means that this is an ongoing process. Uh, a literal translation of this verse would read, be being filled with the Spirit. This is, a, this is the lifestyle tense. Our daily lives should be one of continually being filled with the Spirit. This is not a one-time experience for a Christian. This is an ongoing reality for a Christian, constantly being filled by the Holy Spirit. Okay. This is also in the passive voice, which means that we are the one 
one's being acted upon by the Holy Spirit. Okay, in other words, we don't fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one filling us. All right? God wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit. We are to allow him to fill us by submitting to him, by obeying him, by listening to him. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the word, the definition for a moment. Uh, this Greek word is used 86 times in the New Testament. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating word. There's a lot of different layers of meaning wrapped up into it. I want to give you three, uh, three of those layers, three pictures of what this word means. Okay? So if you're taking notes, you might want to write down the word permeate. Permeate. Okay, so obviously uh, we're going to talk about steak for a minute. Um, uh, it, 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 I, like, I like meat, right? Okay. Uh, you all need to be dry brining your meat. Okay, this is really good for big pieces of meat like brisket, uh, pork shoulders, pork butts. But I've dry brined even my steak, chicken, whatever. So dry brining is where you take, take your meat out of, the, out of the fridge, thawed, right? You take your coarse, kosher salt and sprinkle it on your meat. Okay, both sides, all right? And uh, you just wait a few hours, okay? So what will happen is the, the salt is going to draw moisture out of the meat. Okay, so you'll see... Uh, moisture coming up to the salt and like meeting the salt, like, hey, you taste good. They, the salt will dissolve, okay? And there'll be little pools of water, like salt water, on the meat. Leave it alone. You want it to be there, okay? Don't dry it off, okay? Wait a couple more hours. What will happen is the salt will dissolve and the moisture will go back into the meat. And that salt will permeate the whole piece of meat. Okay, and so every bite you get will be perfectly salted. It's delicious. It's, you got to do it. You got to dry brine. Okay, so in the same way that salt permeates steak, so too is the Holy Spirit to permeate every part of us. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. The Spirit is supposed to be involved in how our mind works, what we believe, how we think. It's supposed to be involved in our emotions, how we feel, what we love, what we hate. It's supposed to be involved in our will, every decision that we make through the day, permeating us. Permeate, push. Right, push down. So think of the Spirit as, as being the wind that fills the sail of a sailboat and pushes the boat along. The Holy Spirit is the power that fills our sails and pushes us along the path of God's will. Okay, push, permeate, and then write down preside. Preside. A king presides over his court as the one who has absolute authority over everyone at the table, right? In the same way, being filled with the Spirit means that he presides over our lives as the one who has absolute authority over every part of our lives. He is the dominant force over every other person in our lives, including ourselves. He presides over us as king, and we submit to his rule over us. So being filled with the Spirit is all of these ideas wrapped together. Okay, we are continually, daily, allowing Him to fill us so that, he, so that He permeates every part of our being. He controls every part of us, and He pushes our lives along the center of God's will. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Walking in wisdom is a Spirit-filled walk. Now, what will the fruits be if we are being filled with the Spirit? What will our lives look like? Paul tells us there are four, and we're going to close with this. I'm going to ask the, 
worship team to come on up now. We're going to close with this last few verses real quick here. These are the four fruits that will show up in our lives when we are being filled with the Spirit. Here's number one. First fruit. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing one another. Spirit-filled Christians will share with each other about the joy of their salvation. We'll talk with each other about how great God is. And this, by the way, happens a lot at small group. It's very encouraging. I highly recommend getting into a small group where this can happen. It's mutually benefiting each other by by praising God and talking about what, what God's doing in our lives. And listen, I know I want and need more of this in my home. Right, I want my, my kids and my wife hearing me praise God for who he is and what he's done. I want more of this in my house. But listen, it starts with me being filled with the Spirit. It starts with you being filled with the Spirit. Fruit number two, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Spirit-filled Christians will delight in praising God. We love worshiping God individually, corporately, I want more of this in my life, too. I hope you do. Listen, it comes from being filled with the Spirit. Third fruit, give me thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled Christians will be thankful. And Paul pretty much covers everything. He says, always and for everything. How often should we pray? Always. What should we pray, give thanks for? Everything. He covers it all. Listen, I want, I want more gratitude in my home. I hate it when we're complaining and grumbling and bitter. I want us to be thankful. But listen, it starts with me being filled with the Spirit. And finally, here it is, fruit number four, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled Christians will be submissive to one another. We'll give up our rights. We won't fight for our rights. We'll submit. And listen, I, Steph's really good at this. She convicts me a lot. She's really quick to be submissive. And I, I admire her for that. She convicts me a lot about this. Listen, I need more submission in my home. It starts with me being filled with the Spirit. Our Father wants to fill His children with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Luke 11, 9-13, he says, uh, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Father wants to fill His children with His Holy Spirit. So let's ask Him to fill us so that we can imitate Him as dearly beloved children. Let's bow our heads. We'll do that now. Father, we love You and we... We want you to fill us with your spirit.
You're a God who delights in sending his spirit to fill us up. God, forgive us for all the, all, all the ways that we, we grieve your spirit and rebel. Father, we want him to rule uh, all of us. He want, we want him to permeate all of our being. We want him to be the power that pushes us along your, your perfect will. So, Father, we ask that you would fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. We're loved.